Welcome back to True Crime Trine, the podcast where the planets align and three friends chat about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit that can fit into this podcast. We are your host, Hannah, Meredith, and Sarah's still on leave. On leave. She's on sabbatical. Sarah. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. You better have gotten us some new fans. Yeah, so, episode 18, once again, a duo. And we're recording episode 17 18 at the very same time. Peek behind the curtain. So we have no corrections for this one because we did them all for episode 17. Yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll hit that up in like 19 or 20 when Sarah's back in tow. But currently, we're doing very well right now. I think we're doing okay. <laughs> I mean, we're trying. I want to start my story this week off with a quote from magician Joshua J. When I look at playing cards, I see limitless potential. When these simple symbols are shuffled, fortunes are won. The future is foretold or magic is unleashed. Wow, Joshua. Right? <laughs> so I am a big fan of games like War, oh, Solitaire, God, and Jen, and I'm always down for a game of Texas Hold'em or Blackjack, though when we do end up down in Vegas, you'll find me day drinking and people watching as opposed to playing cards. Oh, that's, but... I mean, same. I've never actually been to a casino before, so I might just watch. What? You've never been to a casino? No. It's never come up. I don't know. Okay. Have you been to Vegas? No. I'd also have oh. never come up. I feel like I w- if I'd been to Vegas, I would have at least gone to a casino and like peeked in. At least most of the decent hotels. There are some on the seedier side of town, but most of the hotels are casinos as well. So it's a fun place for sure. I've had many of fun nights in Las Vegas. So what would you say is your favorite game to play with cards? Sarah and Kirk and I play this game called Pounce. Ooh. And it's basically every person has their own deck of cards. You're playing solitaire in front of you, but you're also playing solitaire in the middle of the table. And the whole point is to get rid of a certain set of cards the fastest. So it's really fast paced and you're just looking and looking and looking and it's like really... There's a lot of frenetic energy that comes along with it, but I love that game so much. Oh my god, that sounds like so much fun. You guys will have to teach me that. Oh my goodness, for sure. So, to get into my story, detectives in Snohomish County in Washington, in the Snohomish County Cold Case Unit, they prefer to use cards to solve cold cases. Okay, enlighten me. In 2008, the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit 
created a deck of playing cards featuring 52 cold cases from the county. The majority of the cases were within Snohomish County Sheriff's jurisdiction, and there are a few that are being investigated by local police departments in Everett and Monroe. And with the help of the Stillaguamish tribe and their $5,000 donation, the detectives were able to customize 5,000 decks of cards. Oh my goodness, that's like, I love this idea. Right? I mean, I love playing cards. And what a great way to utilize them. So, and as a fun side note, in the city of Everett, which is the county seat for Snohomish County, it is illegal to display a hypnotized or allegedly hypnotized person in a store window. Okay. Just one of those... Just... Sure. Weird laws that are still on the books. It's one of those, like, why did that law have to be written? There's got to be a story behind it that we're missing now, but yeah. I like that it's hypnotized or allegedly hypnotized. Yeah, so this is a bit, you can get in trouble for, um, if even if it's not your intention. I've mm-hmm. never had any sort of uh, feeling that I should put a picture of a hypnotized person in my window. Like, it's never come up in my life, but yeah, what's ever it, man? I know. So there you go. So the Snohomish County detectives selected 52 men, women, and children who were killed or who disappeared under suspicious circumstances over the previous four decades to feature on these playing cards. The cards were then distributed to local inmates serving their time in city and county jails as well as the state facilities such as Monroe Correctional Complex. It is not the state penitentiary, but it is one of 12 prison facilities in the state of Washington. It opened in 1910, 21 years after statehood, and it is also one of the few prisons in the state of Washington that I have not been to. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Because now we know there's at least 12. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. I've been to a few. (laughs) Only as a visitor. Once again, we have to stress, only as a visitor. Meredith's not here for her um, knowledge of the other side, you know. No. But I do have some fun stories, but I think I'll save those for if we ever set up a Patreon. That'll be like, Meredith's prison story episode. Oh my god, that'd be so good. Because it's funny. That's good. Anyway, no, that's like a a really good idea, too, is to give them to the prisoners. Yeah. Who, you know, might have heard, I don't know, a fellow criminal talk about this or something. Like, like that's right? a really good idea. I didn't even think about that. I mean, snitches get stitches, but sometimes snitches get plea deals. Yeah, so what would you prefer? The Snohomish County Sheriff's Office has two dedicated detectives assigned to the cold case unit, and they have approximately 65 unsolved homicides and missing person cases dating all the way back to 1962. And there are also civilian volunteers that assist the cold case team, which is a part of the major crimes unit. And I'm not quite sure what these volunteers do, but I'm interested in finding out. I was going to say, that sounds intriguing. However... I don't have any free time to add any (laughs) other fun stuff to my plate at this point, but maybe someday, someday I can help solve crimes. It's in the back of uh, our minds. Now Mm -hmm. you know it's an option. 
Yeah. So anyone with information about these unsolved homicides or missing persons cases is asked to call 800-222-8477. Up to a $1,000 reward is offered. Tips can also be left on the sheriff's tip line at 425-388-3845, and callers may remain anonymous, although tips have been more successful when the callers speak directly with detectives, and we will post the link to the cards as well as to the contacts on um, social media as well as the website. Today, I am going to tell you the story of one of the cold cases that was solved. Oh, so exciting. This is the story of the Queen of Hearts, Susan Schwarz. There wasn't much information on Susan's childhood, but her brother Gary Schwarz indicated in an interview for Motives and Murder, Cracking the Case. Is that a magazine? It is a TV show. Okay. And I had never heard of it before, but pretty good as far as, I mean, my heart is with forensic files. That's what I grew up on. I know, always. But it was good. I enjoyed how they, you know, presented the cases and stuff. And there's a lot of really good information and interviews within this story. Cool. We should put um, that in the website as well then. Yeah, we can drop that link in there. Fun new show. So... Gary indicated that their home life was not the happiest. Susan had a good relationship with her two younger siblings, Gary and Valerie, but had a very rocky relationship with their mom. Gary indicated that their mother was an alcoholic, and Susan moved out on her 18th birthday to live with her boyfriend, Bill Hassler. Susan was described as a happy-go-lucky type person. She was well-liked by her friends and acquaintances and was known to lend a helping hand to anyone in need. She was a bit more introverted, though, and she did prefer to kind of stay at home or hang out with a close circle of friends, but she was known to party a little bit and did like to smoke a little weed. Oh, no. I mean, you described me for a lot of my life. It's fine. (laughs) I have other stories I could share on Patreon <laughs> some other time. Just so everyone's like, da- we're just dangling the bait for Patreon. Extracurricular activities mm-hmm. is what I'll call them for now. <laughs> so from all accounts, it appeared that Susan had a simple but happy life. Susan and Bill lived in a small home in the Alderwood Manor area of Linwood, Washington, which is approximately 20 miles north of Seattle. So Seattle is still in King County. This is in Snohomish County, so it does cross, you know, that line. But it's not too far away from from downtown Seattle. On October 22nd, 1979, so again, we're going back. back. At approximately 4 p.m., Bill returned home from work. When he walked into the house, he had noticed a check that he had asked Susan to deposit in the bank earlier that day, and he thought it odd that she wouldn't have taken it, because she was pretty good about taking care of those little kind of household chores and stuff. He rounded the corner and then found Susan's body. Oh, no. Yeah. He ran to the neighbor's house and called the police. And police officer Steve O'Connor was the first on the scene. Susan was found face down with a towel or maybe a robe, they weren't quite sure, draped over her body. And her hands had been bound with electrical cord and she had been shot in the head 
three times. Jesus Christ. That seems like a lot for a simple life homebody. Naturally, Bill was very distraught. He did indicate to police that several items were missing from the home, including some stereo equipment, some jewelry, and then Susan's wallet was also missing. Major crimes detectives Joe Ward and Ken O'Christensen were called to the scene. A 22 caliber shell casing and a live 22 caliber round were located at the scene. Detectives also found blood in various locations in the bathroom, as well as some hair that was pulled from Susan's scalp. There was no sign of forced entry, no open windows, no broken glass. The house seemed to be in order. No furniture had been overturned to indicate a struggle, and the house was not ransacked in any sort of way. Uh, There had to be a little bit of ransacking to, like, tie someone's hands up with electrical cord. From the accounts, anyway, it was odd. It was an odd scene. super odd. Yeah. So, detectives came to the conclusion that Susan either knew her assailant and let them in willingly, or that a stranger had entered through an unlocked door. Technicians fingerprinted the house, but that did not establish any leads. The house besides the bathroom and the location of Susan's body, it was clean. Detectives learned that Susan kept her house in immaculate order. And the only odd thing that they found were two sets of shoe impressions in the carpet. One was larger and one was smaller. Susan was barefoot. So it was unlikely oh. that these impressions belonged to her. So two different people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Was this a robbery gone wrong or was this something more nefarious? Something fell off to the detectives about the crime scene and they really felt like it had been staged in some fashion. Yeah, I'm feeling the same way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Something's just not quite right. So the detective's first suspect, of course, is the boyfriend, Bill Hassler. Police tend to start with those that are closest to the victim, and this was a particularly brutal execution-type homicide, so it seemed personal. Yeah, because otherwise it just seems like overkill. Mm-hmm. A lot of anger Yeah, directed at Susan for some reason. So detectives interviewed Bill. He said he had left the house that morning to go to his job. He worked for a floor tile business in Bellevue, Washington. Detectives were able to corroborate his alibi. They felt like Bill was holding something back, though. And upon a little further questioning, Bill revealed that he and Susan both smoked weed and Ah. that Bill sold small amounts of weed to friends and acquaintances. See what happens when weed is illegal? It makes you look suspicious in other ways. It does. The detectives decided to pursue Susan's homicide as a potentially drug-related incident, and it was possible that someone may have thought that Bill and Susan had large amounts of cash or weed at the house and came to rob them, and Susan was home. Mm -hmm. They worked with narcotics detective Barry Fagan, And he contacted local drug informants, but no information ever surfaced about this particular crime. I do have a timeout question about, I'm just wondering what happened to Bill after he confessed to selling a little bit of weed. It It didn't say. It just seems like sticking salt in the wound to also arrest this guy whose, like, girlfriend was brutally murdered and then 
by the way, you're also going to go to prison for a little bit because of this weed thing. I'm hoping they gave Bill a pass because his girlfriend got murdered. Give and Bill a pass. a lot of times, you know, homicide detectives aren't really necessarily interested in drug-related crimes if they're pursuing. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but that's what Criminal Minds has taught me, so... I don't know what happens, though, because we only see the criminal line, the people in Criminal Minds for a second. And then you're like, well, I don't know what happens after they leave. Yeah. And the local DA is like, hey got a case. But they didn't technically, I guess they would have to, like, catch him selling or oh. him to have stuff on his persons for charges. Or in the house. Yeah. All right. Either way, hopefully Bill got a pass for the little bit of weed. And it did say that he was very small. So it wasn't like he had large amounts of weed at the house or large amounts of cash or anything like that. It was just kind of, I guess, more of a hobby. I just feel like Bill had enough on his mind. Exactly. Right now. The detectives interviewed Susan and Bill's neighbors. One neighbor did claim to hear something that sounded like a squealing pig around 9.45 in the morning, but they did not see anything that seemed suspicious. Detectives were unable to come up with any other witnesses to the crime. That's barely a witness to begin with, but... Yeah. A squealing pig. Yeah. Interesting. Give me heebie-jeebies. I I don't like that at Mm -mm. all. Nope. The coroner's report indicated that there was no evidence of sexual assault, so the homicide did not appear to be sexually motivated. The lack of physical evidence and the witness statements really handicapped the investigation because there was absolutely no leads to pursue. Yeah. Yeah, there's like nothing there. In the summer of 1981, rookie detective Alan Zurio was assigned to the case. A neighbor had come forward with information about a young man that was seen walking through the neighborhood with a cylindrical object. The neighbor helped to provide police with a composite drawing of the suspect, and Detective Zurio was able to identify this man as Ricky Hartman, who was a petty criminal he lived around the corner from bill and susan and he bore a very strong resemblance to the composite sketch ricky was interviewed he volunteered to take a polygraph test and he passed ricky told detectives that he was carrying his bong to a friend's house that morning (laughs) this is just a weed centric story i know it's just a it's a long bong In the show that I watched, they have this person portraying Ricky, and he's got, like, a six-foot bong that he's carrying. Just through the neighborhood, no big deal, not conspicuous. (laughs) Yeah. So, Ricky was a stoner, not a murderer. Okay. On January 16th of 1986, so this is six years after Susan's murder, another young woman was found dead. Oh, no. Her name is Molly McClure. She was 28, and she was found bound and shot in the head in her North Seattle apartment. So, again, this is about 20 miles from where Susan was found. Mm-hmm. Detective Barry Fagan, the narcotics detective, got wind of the case and asked Seattle police to, you know, have access to the file. It just ticked a lot of the boxes for Susan's murder. It really does. There was just too many similarities for him to not take a look at it yeah seattle police arrested a man named sherwood knight for molly's murder as he had left dna at the scene which tied him to the homicide and he was her i think 
upstairs neighbor. Okay. I could have looked a little bit further into that. I opted not to just for time's sake because we will see Sherwood again. Okay. I'll be waiting. Detective Fagan looked into the into the case a little bit further and he found out that Sherwood was the half-brother of Gregory Johnson. Gregory had been married to Susan's best friend, Mary. So they there was a tie there. Weird. Both of the brothers had a long criminal history of assault, robbery, and other drug-related crimes. And Detective Fagan interviewed Gregory, who was in prison for armed robbery at the time, to see if he might flip on his Mm half-brother, you know. Johnson said that he was in the car when Susan was murdered, but he didn't know it at the time. He indicated that Sherwood and two other men and himself drove to the house and that Sherwood and the other two men went inside. He said he heard a crack And then three men came out of the house with some stereo equipment and drove away. Where was he? In the car. Oh, okay. Johnson said he didn't realize until later that it was Susan's house. Unfortunately for detectives, they did not have any evidence to support Johnson's story or any physical evidence to put either brother at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. Detective Fagan had his suspicions, but there was just not enough evidence to pursue charges against Sherwood Knight or Gregory Johnson. But Sherwood was arrested for Molly's murder, correct? He was, yes. The case was at a standstill, and there it would remain for 26 years. God, it's almost as long as my lifetime. Susan's brother Gary stayed in contact with the sheriff's department over the years to see if any leads had been found. Though Gary knew that it would be unlikely that Susan's case would be solved, he wanted to make sure that he was doing what he could so that Susan wouldn't be forgotten. Yeah, because I don't even say this is like a bad thing, but I feel like after 26 years... It will get forgotten. There's a lot of other, especially in a metropolitan area like Seattle and whatnot, there's going to be a lot of other things that come up in the meantime that you can solve. Yeah, and I think, too, as we get more, you know, technically advanced and we get these new, you know, like the Parabon technologies and DNA technologies that, you know, it's kind of boosting momentum for cold case detectives because they're able to, you know, get some tests done and be able to solve this. But yeah, because it was really kind of luck that um, the Everett detective heard about Molly's murder at all. Mm -hmm, Exactly. In 2005, the Snohomish County Sheriff's Department started their cold case unit with Detective Jim Scarf as the lead investigator. Scarf reviewed the case file. He determined that the most likely suspects clearly were Sherwood Knight and Gregory Johnson, but gathering evidence was going to be tough because so, so much so much time had passed. In 2008, the cold case cards were distributed to the local jails and the prison facilities in the area in hopes of drumming up leads. And I'm not sure when this occurred, but detectives did learn that Mary Johnson, Gregory Johnson's ex-wife, had trouble in her marriage. Gregory was physically abusive to Mary, and she would often confide in Susan about her marital Mm -hmm. issues. And Susan helped Mary to escape the relationship which allowed her to eventually file for divorce from Gregory. 
Okay. And that Gregory hated Susan for meddling in his relationship with Mary, and he seemed to hold a grudge against Susan. So it was possible that this could be motive. Gregory, someone had to meddle. You're an asshole. Exactly. Again, the details are a little bit fuzzy about Mary and kind of how she played into different interviews and stuff like that. There wasn't a, a good timeline for her. So how she met Gregory? Because it doesn't seem like uh, Susan and her boyfriend might have dealt a little weed, but nothing Maybe. major. But like, he seemed like a different level of criminal yeah. than anyone else that was in Susan's life. So how did Mary meet him? It didn't really talk about that, so it would. I guess it would just be conjecture, but I'm still a little curious as to why Mary wasn't talked to. I mean, I, I feel like the detectives at the time could have pursued a few more leads, but in 2009, Mary brought detectives a letter that Sherwood had written to Gregory. Sherwood was demanding $2,000 in order to secure an attorney in his own legal matters. Otherwise, he would disclose, quote, Miss Millman's secret, end quote. Hmm. In some of the articles that I read in 2011, an inmate had seen the Queen of Hearts card and came forward with information regarding the murder of Susan Schwarz, which is the whole point of these cards. And I'm super supportive of that. But I did a little bit more digging, and that inmate was actually Sherwood Knight. Wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Take that in a minute. Yeah, that's a conflict of interest. (laughs) It appears that holding grudges may run in the family. Ha, yes. Or that Sherwood was looking to barter the information for his benefit because he was still serving his sentence for Molly McClure's murder. Mm-hmm. When detectives interviewed Sherwood, he provided the details of the crime. He said that he had been out fishing when Gregory had found him and asked him to provide the alibi if anyone asked. Gregory told Sherwood that he had killed Susan. When detectives showed Sherwood that jailhouse letter that Mary had provided, Sherwood broke down and told them that Miss Millman was Gregory's girlfriend at the time, Shelley Martin. She was about 17 or so at the time, I think. So already bad. Yeah. And Sherwood indicated that Shelley was with Gregory on October 22nd, the day of Susan's murder. Was Gregory, like, was Mary divorcing Gregory at this point? Or is this another woman? This is another woman because Mary and him had divorced. Okay. He went younger. Mm Mm-hmm. 32 years after Susan's murder, detectives finally had a lead. (laughs) Finally. I know. They were able to locate Shelly Martin. Shelly said that she had met Gregory at a party. He was sweet to her, and she was smitten with him. Shelly denied knowing anything at first, but detectives could tell that she was not being truthful. They pressed Shelly a little bit further, and they questioned her about the smaller shoe impressions that were found inside, oh, inside Susan's home. And Shelly, she caved. Shelly told detectives that she was with Gregory the day of Susan's murder. He told her that he needed to go collect some money from a person that owed him. And when they arrived at the house, Shelly stayed in the car and Gregory went inside alone. He came out and told Shelly 
to help him grab some stuff because, quote, she was in the shower. Shelly entered the home and grabbed some of the stereo equipment and took it back out to the car. She waited for Gregory to return, but he was taking a long time and she was starting to get nervous. Shelly then went back into the house to find Gregory assaulting Susan in the bathroom. Gregory then dragged Susan out of the bathroom and threw her to the floor. Shelly said she was too afraid to move and she just stood there in silence. She said Susan begged for her life. Oh, God damn. Gregory then shot Susan three times in the head. He then tied her hands behind her back with the, the electrical cord. Okay. He then looked to Shelly and said, quote, It's that easy. This is what happens when people fuck with my life, end quote. Okay, yeah, he does hold a grudge. Because I was going to be like, Greg, move on. Yeah. Right? Like, you're divorced from Mary. You have a new girl around. Like, just move on, dude. Yeah, get over it. Jeez. Afterwards, Gregory threatened Shelly. Yeah, no shit. He told her that if she ever said anything, he would kill her. Shelly told detectives that she has carried the secret for all of these years because she was fearful for her life. Well, and Greg did tell her how easy it was. Right? And she witnessed him firsthand Do doing it. this. So, yeah. you know, and again, she was 17 at the time. She was just a, a young she kid. She was a baby. You know, she was petrified, and that's why she never came forward. Detectives finally had enough probable cause to arrest Gregory for the murder of Susan Schwarz. April 22nd of 2011, Gregory Johnson was arrested outside of a halfway house in Seattle. I'm going to say a Taco Bell. Nope. <laughs> no Taco Bell. No Taco Bell this episode. Faced with eyewitness testimony from Shelley Martin, Gregory Johnson pled guilty to second degree murder. On March 23rd of 2012, Gregory Johnson, at the age of 58, was sentenced to life in prison, and he is currently Good. serving his sentence at the Coyote Ridge Correctional Center in Connell, Washington, which is sure. just outside of the Tri-Cities. I haven't been to this one either. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go to the Tri-Cities all the time, but I don't know this one. Yeah. In an interview with Susan's father, Henry Schwarz, he said, quote, when she died, I wrapped her memory in blankets and I tried to forget it. Oh, my God. That's so sad. Gary took it much harder. Those two were like peas in a pod, end quote. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess her father still had two other kids to kind of try to stay together. Yeah. Or, oh, my goodness. Susan's brother, Gary Schwartz, commented during sentencing, quote, the desire to help her friend should not have ended her life. Not quote. even a little bit. Nope. In May 2011, cold case detectives identified convicted sex offender Danny Giles through DNA evidence collected from a 1995 homicide of Patty Berry, who was the ace of clubs, and the oh. 1995 disappearance and suspected homicide of Tracy Brazell, who was the ace of spades. Investigators claim that forensic evidence ties him to both cases. No charges have been filed against him, though. The prosecutor decided to file a petition to hold Giles indefinitely as a sexually violent predator at the Department of Social and Health Services Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island. While I haven't been inside the Special Commitment Center, I have been to McNeil Island. 
Okay. Which requires a DOC background check and all of the paperwork that you would have to fill out to visit a corrections facility. So, and a funny side note, my cousin and her husband, their last name is McNeil, and they came out to visit us in September of, I think, 2019. And I asked them, like, what do you want to do? And her husband had said, I want to go to McNeil Island. (laughs) And you're like, oh. I'm like, funny story. I've been there, but you'd have to be indicted um, and a very, very, very violent sexual offender to um, access the island through that. Put you on an island. Yeah. And it's a 15 minute ferry ride to get to the island. It's basically where the worst of the worst are. Most of the criminals on the island have completed their sentences but they cannot be returned to the public. There's just... That's really interesting. I didn't know that was a thing. It is. And it's not a DOC facility, so it's not a correctional facility, but it's Hmm. a Department of Social and Health Services facility. But it is still manned like it is a correctional facility. Interesting. Additionally, detectives have made progresses on the following cases... The King of Hearts was the unsolved homicide of Jay Cook and Tanya Kuhlenberg, and an arrest was made in that case. The Ten of Hearts, which was also an unsolved homicide of Jody Loomis, an arrest was made in that case. And the Eight of Hearts was a missing person, and thankfully, uh, Judith Bellow was located. Wow. However, most of the cold case deck remains unsolved, so take a minute, check the link. Remember, if you have any information on these cases, to contact either the Crime Stoppers of Puget Sound or the Snohomish County Sheriff's Department tip line. I provided those numbers at the beginning, but we'll also put those up on social media and the website. And that is the story of the Snohomish County Cold Case Cards and the Queen of Hearts, Susan Schwarz. I do have mixed feelings after this. Uh Uh-huh. It's very interesting that Gregory's brother was the one to come forward, but... Yeah, I was a little disappointed because I really wanted it to be like, these cards were specifically responsible, but... It's like he saw it and he was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that one time. Mm-hmm. And my fucking brother didn't help me out with my shit, so I'm now going to come forward and provide this information. This is a family of grudge holders. Yeah. No shit. So for astrological overview, any guesses as to what Gregory might be? Um, let's see here. Gregory, a little chaotic energy. A Sagittarius? Nope. Okay. I was able to find his birthplace, which is not very common. Um, It was Monroe, Louisiana, but I could not confirm his birth date. Oh, no. I know. I'm so disappointed. The closest I got was August of 1951, 53, or 55. (laughs) Okay, that's a span. And August is also a span. Right? So I checked genealogy websites. I checked online court records that were free because... That's what we do. We're not lucrative yet enough to have fancy researchers. Do anything. Yeah. I checked benverified.com and I mean, I went... I probably spent a good day trying 
different avenues. Which is bonkers because it has to be there. He's in an institution. Well, in a lot of his DOC records that I was able to come across, they list the month and then the year Um, of 1953. But then there's some genealogy websites that have the month, August, and then 1951. And then there's a couple places where they talk about how old he was at at Mm -hmm. a certain time. And then if you do the math on it, then it was 1955. And I'm like, I was so disappointed because I wanted to find out if there was, you know, specifically because I found his birthplace because I found the marriage certificate. Oh, yeah. To Mary Johnson, which, and and it was the picture of it, but for whatever reason in King County at that time or Snohomish County at that time, I think it was actually King County, but they didn't have the birth dates, which uh, when I got married, my birth date is listed on my marriage certificate. So I was a little disappointed, but it did have his birthplace. However, he was born in August, so he is either a Leo or a Virgo. So. I was going to say, actually, when you're telling the story, Susan had some uh, Virgo Taurus vibes to mm -hmm. me. I looked up negative traits because that's what I like to do. (laughs) So I looked up the negative traits of Leo and the negative traits of Virgo. A less evolved Leo would be possessive. Jealous, egotistical, impatient, self-centered, and dominant. And for a less evolved Virgo, they would be overly critical, judgmental, overthinkers, and insecure. Based on this, I will surmise that he is most likely a Leo. Yeah, because we just talked about Virgo for the last episode, too, and they're more likely to... um turn these kind of things in on themselves Mm -hmm. so like i think it'd be more common for a virgo in a divorce to be like i did something i'm unlovable whatever like that but like they don't have as strong as an ownership over people yeah yeah i think that's a solid guess that's my guess sarah you can weigh in when you get back (laughs) yes you have so much to weigh in on when you get back sarah and sarah should be back after this episode airs hopefully if she's if she still loves us i was like sarah your sabbatical's over (laughs) back to work (laughs) so for astrology this week I have a few things. It's not a lot, but this episode will air on the 16th. And on August 16th, Venus enters Libra, Hannah's least favorite of the signs. I know you can't see my face, listeners, but my face just went. Venus and Libra? I'm trying to get a relationship going right now. I can't have this Libra bullshit. During this time, we are more inclined to use charm than direct or assertive behavior to get what we want. I'm not charming. (laughs) I'm direct. (laughs) Sorry, Capricorn. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) We will be quite willing to negotiate or compromise and will be incredibly idealistic about love. Aggressive behavior from others will be a big turnoff during this time, so keep Hmm. that in mind. And the bad side of this position is that it may cause some inconsistency and some superficiality. We will also try to avoid unpleasant situations, and we may even gloss over some deeper issues within our current relationship. So just be aware. 
I think this is why I don't like Libras very much, is that they approach everything the exact opposite of the way that I would. Yeah. And they they do just gloss over things. They want everyone to be happy, and they're kind of wishy-washy. They're super wishy-washy because they just adapt to the situation mm-hmm. and try to be liked by everybody. Sure. And I think they want that more than like a Leo or something who wants everyone to see them and how great they are, but they don't necessarily need everyone to like them. Yeah. I think Leos were probably more confident in their own. Yes. Yeah. Leo comes with a lot of confidence. There's a lot of pros to being a Leo. Yeah. There's definitely pros to being a Libra, I'm sure. Someone will <laughs> tell me about them. Hannah will not discuss that with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm still not in the Libra acceptance phase. I'm just trying to get her to like Geminis a little bit more. <laughs> I'm fine with Geminis, I said. I had no Gemini uh, stigma coming into this podcast. And now she has a lovely Gemini in her circle. I know. So <laughs> I have a lot of Gemini love. Thank you. There's still a lot of shifty fucking Geminis that commit murder, so we'll be talking about those Yeah, soon. don't worry. I'm sh- I think they're going to be one of the most common signs. <laughs> I know. Sorry, Meredith. I still think Sagittarius, though, is like our, our hidden... I think Sag, too. That's why I was like, eh. Oh. I think Virgo and uh, Capricorn, we've had a couple, but I think a lot of the times they just get away with it. I think so. I'm not going to lie. I think so. I'm surprised we haven't had that many Scorpio. I did one Scorpio, but I'll have to do a little bit more digging. I also feel like a Scorpio is more of a, I will destroy your entire life and watch it fall apart around you. Yeah, they may not want to murder you. They don't want to murder you. That's too easy. But they will burn your house down. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, they want everything around you to go to shit and they want to watch it happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. On August 19th, the sun in Leo will be in opposition with Jupiter in Aquarius. This will be a lucky aspect if we can stay humble and not let our egos run wild. Bragging will lead to awkwardness as well as bad luck. So So tone it down, Leos. Stay humble on August 19th. On August 22nd, we will have another full moon in Aquarius. It's going to get weird. This lunation is back again for a little bit of rebellion and going against the grain. So beat your own drum and show off all of those wonderfully weird eccentricities that you may have. Just don't start too much trouble. Say just go dance naked under the moon or something. Exactly. That's that's the energy the Aquarius moon is asking for. Heck yeah. Plus, it's so hot. It'd be just it'd be a pleasure to not be wearing clothing right now. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so also on August 22nd, the sun enters Virgo. Yay! I love Virgo so much. The sun shines a light on health and work as it enters the very practical Virgo. So for those of you who are Virgos, you will be feeling this impact a little bit more intensely than anyone else, but we will all be noticing some changes here and there. Virgo is one of the more practical signs like we talked about earlier. They are generally super organized, occasionally picky. 
but they are very level-headed. If you tend to be more free-spirited during this period, you may find yourself mirroring Virgo's practical and organized nature. For the majority of us non-Virgos, we will find that during this time, it is easier to stay organized. We will feel a little bit more calm, a little bit more collected, and we will have an increased attention to detail, and we will be a little bit more health conscious. Just try not to overthink things too much. That's going to cause you some stress. It's like I said before, I think almost all Virgos have anxiety. I'm pretty sure almost everybody on the planet has anxiety. That's actually, actually (laughs) more correct. But yes, the overthinkers of the Zodiac include the Virgos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Cancers, I would say. I have my moments for sure. Oh, yeah. You know, sometimes it's nice to be able to focus on other things. That's why I just binge watched all 15 seasons of Criminal Minds on two different streaming platforms. It's uh, comforting. It's just mindless, right? It's it's... super mindless, especially because I've seen them all. And so it's just Mm kind of like, hey, friends, on my second monitor, you go solve a crime while I go over here and work on the spreadsheet. Exactly. We're working together. I'm ready for an injection of some more Virgo energy into my life. Okay. And I'm already earthy as fuck, so I don't know what I'm talking about, but (laughs) (laughs) anything, anything helps right now at this end stage of my PhD. Yes. (laughs) Fucking hell. So if you're a Virgo and you would like to help Hannah through, (laughs) through this time, please connect with her through Twitter. At True Trine, through Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And please check out our website. It is super, super awesome. www.truecrimetrine.com. Yay! Woo! Well, on that note, We might as well go back and see our good old friend D.H. Lawrence. Yes, we should. Still haven't read his book. Maybe after I read his book, I'll be like, this is a terrible person. I don't know yet, but... uh, (laughs) That's when you will notice our quote change. Changes very suddenly. Like, oh shit, D.H. Lawrence is a racist or something. I don't know. Anywho, he did say one thing that we can't agree with, we know for sure, and that is that it's okay to flirt with the Zodiac. The Zodiac is well worth flirting with. Unless it's the Zodiac Killer. Boom! Yeah! Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.